Ryan, will you be so kind as to be the mic guy? Okay. I'll remind you that the, the microphones are not amplified in here, but we, we still ask that you use them. If someone's too quiet, I can try to repeat the question. Now, in one sense, I guess the entire book of James is fair play at this point, but I'll ask Lee if I forgot any blanks. Christ. Yeah. 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 Okay. 2B2. Partiality breaks the royal law. Deb, is that the one you're missing? That was it. Okay. So I guess at this point, questions on the epistle of James. <laughs> Whole thing's fair game, I suppose. Um, throw them out. Oh. Allison, Allison, right there. Um, so in James 4.12, it was talking about the law, and you said that the rest of the New Testament hadn't been written yet or, like, wasn't fully nailed out. No, so, no, so, so, no let, me, let me... So as far as we can tell, James, Galatians is possibly, someone could argue, but either James or Galatians are the first writings. The Gospels show up about... 10, 15 years afterwards. So James is, as far as we can tell, there's no other New Testament documents when James is writing. Okay. So then um, when he's talking about the law, the audience at the time, would they be understanding this still as the Old Testament law or would they be understanding this as like the Ten Commandments law? That is a great question. Okay. Prepare for a little sidebar. This is something I actually... Res- well, no, one of, one of the big topics in the New Testament is the... the their author's treatment of the law. I think James's treatment of the law evidences a huge amount of t- taking in Christ's treatment of the law. Um, so James, first of all, cites the royal... Let's, okay, let's take a look at it. It starts out in James chapter 2. It's, I think, the first time he references the law. Um, and the, No, no, it's the end of 1. It's the end of 1. 125. So notice the things James uses to name the law. The one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty. Then in 2, um, two eight, if you really fulfill the royal law, verse 12, so speak and so judge as those who be judged under the law of liberty. So the first observation is, I believe James has one referent with which he changes and calls the perfect law, the law of liberty, the royal law, and the law of liberty. I don't think he's got different reference. I think he's referring to one thing as that, um, which is a pretty strange way of speaking with the law, but especially when you compare like Paul's treatment of the law. My sh- sh- medium-sized, I can't say short, my medium-sized answer is I think James is referring to the law as mediated by and interpreted by Jesus Christ. I think that's the, the first point is just he's grabbing Leviticus 19, not one of the Ten Commandments, which we're so used to that being the second greatest commandment. It's Jesus who, who, who finds a passage that you, we may have thought otherwise obscure in Leviticus and makes this the second greatest commandment. So, so I think he's right in line with Jesus' use of the law, which then raises the bigger question, okay, what is Jesus' use of the law? Um, and... <sighs> Okay. 
I don't think James for a second means the ceremonial, the sacrificial system of the law. That's another one of the things that are absent. For a letter that's so Jewish, there, there's no sacrifice discussion. There's no... He mentions their synagogue in two. So apparently the early Christians are still in synagogues. But we know they have elders in five. Here's the... Here's the short answer. I'll tell you how I get there. But I think what he means by law is the law that remains for Christians as interpreted by Jesus. Now, there's two ways people get to that, and I'll tell you the way I get to that. The most common way is to believe that the Mosaic law is rightly divided into three categories. This is the, it's called, Thomas Aquinas is the first guy to really lay this out, but it, people using this type of treatment predate Aquinas. He's just the first guy to sort of expound upon. Under this view, the law of Moses rightly is divided into three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. So the the ceremonial law would be the laws that govern the sacrificial system, the clean, unclean washings, uh, and the approach, the temple code, the tabernacle code, all of that. And they would say, Jesus' death on the cross abolishes, does away with that aspect. Um, the civil would be those laws that govern Israel as a geopolitical entity, um, which with the dissolution of the Jewish people, with Jesus telling them in Matthew, your house is left empty, I'm going to give the gospel of the kingdom to the Gentiles, that the, the geopolitical laws, um, laws like you need to have a parapet around your roof, laws dealing with capital punishment, law, like those types of laws, they're set aside, and that the moral law is what remains. And according to this view, the moral law is most clearly laid out in the Ten Commandments. That's probably the most popular view. So if you held to that view, that's, I'm not persuaded by it, but if that was your view, then what you'd say is James's reference to the law is those moral laws that remain. Now, in actual practice, I'm just about there. I get there a little differently. I think that Jesus, I don't think the law of Moses can rightly be divided up. I don't think there's anything in the Old Testament text that shows you those divisions, and I don't think there's any treatment by Jesus, Paul, or the apostles that demonstrates that treatment. Jesus can talk about light and heavy commandments. So when he talks about the greatest commandment, literally Jesus says the heaviest commandment. What's the weightiest? And what's the lightest? Um, I think Jesus' ethic, Jesus' law, um, what Paul can refer to in 1 Corinthians 9 as the law of Christ, what um, Galatians 6.2 calls the law of Christ, or is it 6.3, is actually Jesus taking the entire law and the prophets and fulfilling them in himself. Um, but I think that whichever way you land, and we're pretty much going to land on the same page practically. It's just a matter of how you get to there. James means what Jesus means when he talks about his ethical demands for his people. It, it, there is no sacrificial element to it. There is no geopolitical element to it. Both myself and those who do the three-way splitting end up in very much the same place practically. But his reliance upon Jesus in his teaching, the simplest thing I'd say is whatever Jesus is calling on people to do in the Gospels, that's what James is talking about. He's writing to people who we're exposed to that, and he's not altering Jesus' teaching one iota. So whatever you—the the big debate is what you do with Matthew 5 and Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, prophets, and the law, but to fulfill them, and that's what everything centers around on how to deal with the law. James means what Jesus means, would be the simplest. Does, am I sidestepping too big of a question, or is that sort of? No, okay, okay, okay. It's a huge topic, huge topic, uh, which— 
does have huge implications on how you read your Bible and how you understand the New Testament citing the Old Testament, practically speaking, in how we love our neighbor, how we love our, our, our community and the church, not much difference. Um, probably the biggest distinction is going to be whether you end up keeping the Sabbath. Because if you, if you believe the Ten Commandments are the eternal moral law of God, then how on earth do you set aside one of them, the Fourth Commandment, as something no longer to be kept? which is why most consistent people of that stripe are Sabbatarian, um, where the Sabbath laws are binding. Now, most of those people would say the Sabbath is now Sunday, not Saturday. But they would say, whatever the fourth commandment was commanding you to do about the Sabbath is binding on all Christians, which makes sense if you think the Ten Commandments are still in full force. Um, So that's about the only practical difference. If you know any believers who are Sabbatarian, who believe you can't do any work except works of necessity on the, the, on the Lord's day, that's why, because they think the 10 commandments are still directly applicable and in play. And the fourth commandment is really clear. And it was a death penalty offense. So in practical ethics, that's the only difference that I can see is going to be the Sabbath keeping or not Sabbath keeping. Um, But how you get there is a huge question. Any any follow? What? <laughs> the long answer is let's go to Matthew five and talk about the options, what Jesus means, and then the New Testament treatment on that, and Paul's treatment on that, and yeah. Um, that's why I said that's the mid-sized treatment. That was, a, that was a five-minute answer. I mean, come on, the long answer is like eight messages. So, um, so yes, Trinity, microphone. Just a quick follow-up. What is your take on the Sabbath? I think that uh, I don't believe the Ten Commandments as the Ten Commandments are enforced for believers. I don't believe my fathers entered into a covenant with God at Sinai. And I don't believe that based simply on Exodus 20, they, I think, mediated through King Jesus as a law for his people. Many of them word for word do apply. Go to Hebrews 4. Um, I think the, the author of Hebrews makes it clear so piggybacking back onto it a bit more the big debate is what does jesus mean when he says i've not come to abolish but to fulfill and the the short version of what i think jesus means is what plurao fulfill the greek word means everywhere else in matthew which is prophetic fulfillment and so we can all agree jesus death on the cross prophetically fulfills the sacrificial system right I'd say, and that's the way it is with the entire Mosaic law. Now, some of the things Jesus fulfills come across one-to-one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice Paul drops off the land promises, significant there, because in the Ten Commandments, there are land promises attached to the Fifth Commandment. Well, Paul, when he quotes it in Ephesians, leaves that bit out. Interesting. I think the entire Mosaic law is fulfilled in Christ, and some of it comes across into what, what Paul will call the law of Christ, unchanged, word for word the same, and some of it looks a little different. Um, And I think Sabbath keeping is where we get some of that, no, this is more of a fulfillment picture than it is direct one-to-one. So Hebrews 4, let me get there. Okay, so to set the context, he's just cited in 3, Psalm 95, with its implicit warning that we not behave like the Israelites in the wilderness who grumbled against God, who appeared to have a salvation experience. They left something. They were freed from something, but they died in the wilderness. They weren't saved to anything because of their unbelief. So at the very end of, um, of 3, 
pick it up in, oh, say 15. As it's said, Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice and not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not with those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but with those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, which is linking back to Psalm 95, because look at 311, when he quotes Psalm 95, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, which is the fundamental idea of Sabbath, rest. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us be careful and diligent, lest any of us imitate what happened to Israel. You seemed to have been saved from something, but you were never actually saved to anything because you fell away because of your unbelief. That's the author of Hebrews, over, one of his overarching themes in the entire letter. Um, for good news came to them, just came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said... As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the next statement is, so, so to develop his argument, step one, the people who left Egypt did not enter God's rest, the final rest. And, and part of the trick here is there's, there's a moving target or a, a thread of biblical theology of, of rest. God first setting the pattern with his own rest, then in the at Sinai, giving a day of rest. But as you read through Exodus, it, the land is promised to be a land. I will give you rest. You'll move into houses you did not build. You'll eat from vineyards you did not plant. So the land is pictured as rest. And part of what the author of Hebrews does is really interesting from a Bible interpretation. He's going to take Psalm 95, apply it ethically, and then apply it theologically. The ethical application we're near the end of is don't do what they did. Don't be knuckleheads like them, which is sometimes people talk about moralizing the Bible. It's valid. It's not the only thing you should do with it. But we know from Hebrews 10, some of these things were written down so that we might learn from their example and not do what they did. So, hey, pay attention, he says. The, those who left Egypt, they seem to have been delivered and they died in the wilderness. And then he makes the point here, let us fear lest we too follow their example. But then he's going to make another point, which is fast. I think this is fascinating. Okay, let's keep going. So we who believe have entered God's rest. That's the next point. So what would it mean to fail to enter his rest? It'd be to not be saved. He's making that point clear. Um, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works are finished from the foundation of the world, as he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. The author of Hebrews has some of the most fun citation setups going. It is somewhere written. That would not work for me on a final exam in seminary. It is somewhere it's written. Yeah. So So if you can't name the verse... You're in good company. Um, it's either written somewhere. It's somewhere written. Uh, so, and God rested on the seventh day from his work. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying, through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, notice his argument here. 
His argument depends upon the the doctrine of progressive revelation, that the Bible is written in stages. And, and here's the point. He's making the point, David wrote Psalm 95 long, long after the events of the wilderness wanderings occurred. The entire argument hinges upon that chronology. Note, I'll point out to you again. Verse 7, um, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward. Okay? So David's 400 years or more after Abraham and the people in the Exodus and the people leaving and the people leaving Egypt. And so the argument is this. The, how do we know that the rest, the shalom, offered the people in the land wasn't the final rest? How do we know that this developing theme of rest that starts with God's own rest, and then it becomes rest given in the fourth commandment, and then I'll give you rest in the land, how do we know that's not the final stop in that rest thread? Because so many years after the people entered the land, David in Psalm 95 puts rest back on the table. That's the argument. It's re- reading in Psalm 95, look, you can see the citation back in 3, 8 through 11, which, where Psalm 95 recounts the wilderness wanderings and says, hey, don't be like them. So David, writing Psalm 95, by the way, Davidic authorship, Psalm titles, they all get affirmed here as well. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, though I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, David, so many years later, writes to his contemporary Israelites and says, hey, don't be like them. Don't remember, God became angry with them and said, you won't enter my rest. By implication, you don't want that to happen to you. You want to enter his rest. And the author of Hebrews is saying, if David's putting rest into play, then the land as rest cannot be the final developed state of rest, which then makes him say this. Um, for if Joshua, verse 8, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, noticing the argument from chronology, so then there remains a Sabbath rest of the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You get the point? David puts rest on the table so we know the land isn't the final rest. And I'd say there's even a couple more stops in between because there is one who cries out in the streets of Jerusalem, come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And rest rest is the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth where there's neither. I mean, so that's really rest is getting us to be in peace with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Rest isn't fulfilled in the fourth commandment. So under this understanding, the fourth commandment is taking us somewhere. And so the author of Hebrews says, and here's the important citation, so then there remains a Sabbath rest of the people of God. Well, what is that? Is it one day in seven? For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So I would say the applicate, my understanding based on that passage is the fourth commandment in Christ's law is trust and rest in him every day of the week, 24-7. In that sense, when I walk in my own strength, when I trust in my own righteousness, I can break the Sabbath on Tuesday what the Sabbath is getting to, which is rest in Christ. And I can keep the Sabbath on Thursday if I'm resting in Christ for my work. That Sabbath finds its fulfillment in the law of Christ as enter 
God's rest in Christ. Now, if you think the Ten Commandments are eternal, immemorial, immemorial is not the right word, eternal and binding, then there still is one day in seven we're going to need to keep, if you're going to be consistent. I, what I don't get are the people who think the Ten Commandments are eternal, but we don't need to, we can ignore the fourth. I get why if you hold to the tripartite view, you got a real problem with one of the Ten Commandments being gone. Um, so there are good brothers and sisters who are Sabbatarian. I mean, most of the most of the founding pilgrims and most of the Puritans who founded this country, that's why there are still blue laws even to this day in some places, because, no, you shouldn't be conducting unnecessary business on the Sabbath. Um, but that's my understanding of from Hebrews 4. It's also never commanded in the New Testament, and it also shows up on some of Paul's lists of things that are debatable that we ought, like you're free from. One person observes Romans 14. One person observes one day to the Lord. One person keeps them all the same. Because the Gentiles would know nothing of Sabbath. The Gentiles would not have a cultural background of one in seven. So the Corinthians and the other Gentile converts would need to be taught keep one day in seven. You couldn't just assume they'd know that. And it looks as though in the Christian community, there certainly were Christians observing one day of the Lord. And Paul says, hey, if you do that as your conviction, if you do that to honor God, God's honored by it. Another person keeps all days the same. That's cool, too. You know. Um, so there's evidence in Paul not where he, where he, where he would have an opportunity to speak to Sabbath. Um, one, one example, then we can move on, Colossians. Um, Colossians 2. So not only do you have the ex... So Hebrews 4 gives us the explanation theologically, I think, of why the one in seven principle is no longer binding, how it finds its fulfillment in the gospel of resting in Christ. And then we get explicit teaching from Paul that makes it clear, I think, that that, that Sabbath keeping is not obligatory for Christians. So... Hebrews, I mean, Colossians 2, um, 16. Let me start in um, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, um, by putting the body off the body of flesh by the circumcision in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That is, he's... This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let us not pass, let us not pass judgment. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. We know from other passages these were debated issues. Eating food sacrificed to idols. We know even today there's there's different Christian convictions over alcohol. Let no one pass judgment. These are private conscience issues, Paul's saying. Let no one sit in judgment on you with regard to food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, the, the, the folks who hold to the three-part division, their answer would be this isn't normal Sabbaths. This would be high Sabbaths, special Sabbaths. Um, possible, I would say, not the most straightforward reading, just Sabbaths. So here's, here's the place where Paul, what I think, put Sabbath-keeping into the let's not make a rule for everybody, but let everybody have their own convictions 
Let everyone have their own conscience on the issue, just as we would with food, with drink, with festival keeping. So there are some Christians who get excited about Christmas. I know Christians who don't observe Christmas, and for great reasons. I think it's great. The the primary reason being, if this was an important part of our faith, God would give it to us in his word. He doesn't give us the celebration of the incarnation, so I'm good. That's awesome. And if you don't try to force it on other people, good for you, you know? So they had festival dates that they, I mean, we know that most of our festival dates track back to pagan antiquity. I mean, that doesn't mean they're still pagan, but I mean, that that's where they started is the Roman gods gave you certain holidays. And just like nowadays, people get mad if they lose their holidays. So if you're changing the religion, we got to still give them their holidays. So we find a Christian feast for, you know, um, new moon and we find a Christian feast for um, solstice and things like that. And, you know, and you can observe them with a good conscience to honor God. But it's nothing the scripture told us to do, right? So the, these are your lists of personal convictions and that we should coexist at peace with each other. In. And he put Sabbath keeping as one of them, I think. That's my reading of it. So anyway, that's my medium-sized answer for what do I do with the fourth commandment and the Sabbath. Um, I won't say it's a short answer. But I got books, so it's not the long answer either. But that's the... That's the but yeah. So when I see Paul put on a list of debatable conscience issues and then Hebrews gives me a theological explanation, I'm good. That's, that's where I'm at. Um, okay. Who's next? Where are we at? Don Loops. No, 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 no. Okay, Reader's Digest version. Okay. For Cliff Notes. Okay. Um, in 3 9 uh, and James. 10. Yes. Okay. Back to uh, James. <laughs> Thanks for getting us back to James. No, I mean, it was good. We got the law question, which led to the Sabbath question. I mean, I, it, it all makes sense. Three, nine. And ten. Yeah. Uh, it talks about not cursing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or cursing, we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, without going back to sermon archives or uh, commentary. Um, what is meant by cursing? Because... Jesus himself, uh, although I, I understand he would be a special case, he would God, have right no, to... I'll, I'll go further. But, I'll, yeah, okay, go. Um, and uh, I think some of the... Uh, Paul, I believe, uses the word fool. Um, well, let me make a stronger point. God gave his people, including us, a songbook with 150 songs, some of which can... Numerous ones of them contain curses. God apparently would have his people, at times, sing cursings. Mm-hmm. There's no way around that, unless you think the Psalter is no longer like for us. No, they're there. Okay. We can go look at them. They're there. The, and this Israel's corporate songbook. I, I think the, the concept that there may be specialized times where a curse or a rebuke is fitting does not negate the fact that in general, people who curse image bearers and their brothers and sisters are wicked people. I, I mean, that, that'd be the sh- my short answer would be okay. what he specifically indicts here is that from the same um, nine, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. I would assume the I would assume, given the rest of the uncontrolled speech, this is coming from your flesh, from your own anger, from your own pride, from your own offense, from your own self of self worth. How dare you do this to me? And then out comes the cursing, as opposed to, which I think is a much more sober thing, would be taking one of the imprecatory psalms and say, I, th- I think this might be a time to pray or sing something like that, which I, there has to be time for that. I, 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 I lack lots of clear wisdom on when that might be, but 
that there is a time to do that, I think is inescapable just from the fact that we've, we've got him in the Psalms. Um, it's instructive that Paul repents, I believe. Some people think he's being sarcastic, but when he when he struck contrary law, God will judge you, you whitewashed tomb. Mm-hmm. Would you speak this way to the high priest? Oh, I, I repent, brothers. I did not know. It is written, you shall not speak evil against a ruler of your people. I know some people think he's being sarcastic there, but, you know. I, so I, I think that um, deciding when it's... The closest I ever get is when people are doing terrible things. Lord, either... If, if you're planning on bringing them to yourself, if you're planning on bringing them to Christ, like, great. If you're not, could you could you have them? Could you knock them out so that they stop hurting people? You know, I, I think that um, with some of these wars and things, you know, I could be praying that way. But even then, it's like, okay, if this is how you're planning on on bringing this person to yourself, you think of how long and patient. You could think that the early church could have prayed imprecatory psalms against Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. Mm-hmm. But God had other plans. So that's about as close as I'll ever get. Um, or when I'll hear about someone, uh, an authority figure, sometimes whether it's like an angry husband doing great harm to a family, like, Lord, if you're planning on bringing this person back, awesome. If not, could you knock him down? <laughs> well, even in those imprecatory psalms, they're allowing God to do the work, not taking it on yes. themselves. Yes. Um, but I think biblically a curse would be the Lord do this to you. Not, I will. I mean, you do have some of those examples. I mean, the Lord will pay me if I do not do it. You got the people who took a vow of not eating unless they mm-hmm. killed Paul. Like, that's not the type of... Or we're, yeah. That's a new dot weight loss plan, you know? Um, David claims God's uh, uh, blessing or direction in, in striking down his enemy. In, yeah. Uh, but David's the Lord's anointed. It gets back right. to like, okay, if you're the Lord's anointed. I mean... Moses strikes down the Egyptian, and and we get from um, we get from who's the first guy killed in the church? Stephen. We get from mm-hmm. Stephen. Um, this is pretty cool. Go to go to Acts eight. I'm only going here because I want to give you a cool Calvin quote. Um, <laughs> sorry, this is a total tangent, but it's my ABF, so I get to decide what tangents we take. But, um, well, no, I've heard Moses talk Today? before. You may have heard this, that <laughs> Moses acted presumptuously when he struck down the Egyptian and God had to take him out to the wilderness to teach him and to show him I'm going to do it in mind. That's not Stephen's interpretation of what happened. And Calvin jumps on this in his commentary. And I, I, I'm thankful because I'd, I'd thought that, you know, so... The, the old trajectory that I'd heard was that Moses tried to raise himself up and he tried to make himself a deliverer and he tried to take matters into his own hand and we know that that was presumptuous on his part because it didn't work out. And then 40 years later, after God had to teach Moses patience and he had to teach him humility, then he rose him up. That's not Stephen's interpretation. In Stephen's interpretation in Acts 7, not 8, in Acts 7, um, and, and part of this is Stephen's sermon is basically this. God keeps sending you knuckleheads prophets, and you keep killing them. You keep rejecting them. Stop it. You just killed his son. That's, that's, that's Stephen's overarching theme as he goes through Israel's history. And so um, in 723, when he, Moses, we know that from verse 20, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now look at 25. Here's what Moses was thinking, says Stephen. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as there were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this report, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush when Moses saw it. And it goes on. Well, the point is, you could have been delivered 40 years earlier if you hadn't kicked Moses out. Moses believed, according to Stephen, and now you could argue, Acts inherently tells us what Stephen said, but Stephen could be wrong. When Stephen got done saying this sermon, the Lord Jesus wasn't sitting but standing, <laughs> receiving him into glory. That, I see the Lord standing. He's not seated. He's standing. So I'm, anybody the Lord Jesus gives a standing ovation to, I think is I'm going to trust what they have to say. No, because some of this, we don't know how he gets his data. Whether it's Jewish tradition that Moses was 40. That's how we find out. How, like Moses' life cycle is right here. 40 years, 40 years as a herdsman, and then 40 years leading Israel. So Moses is 120, but we get those divisions right here and nowhere else. So verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He, he believed he was being raised up by God as a, as a deliverer, as a judge, as a prophet, and that his brothers would understand that, and they rejected him. So Calvin's point is that Moses' only error wasn't striking the Egyptian down, it was looking both ways. If you're the Lord's appointed judge, what do you care who sees you? I, sorry, Calvin just cracked me up with his like brashness. He's like, Moses' only mistake was looking both ways. Who cares? If you're the Lord's anointed, if you're the Lord's deliverer, who's going to stop you? Like, okay. No, it cracks me up. Calvin's awesome like that. His commentaries are fun. Um, his, his commentaries are fun. Anyway. Um, what? Yeah. Yes, they are. Yes. Well, he goes after the popery and papacy, although sometimes more often than you'd want, like he spots it. I mean, but that's what he's dealing with. I mean, you, but when people preach on what they write to the issues of the day, and so there's there's some there's some spicy stuff there. But that one that one cracked me up um, when when he made that point. No, Calvin's Calvin's a great expositor of scripture. Luther doesn't do what Calvin does. I mean, Luther and Calvin are both magisterial in the Reformation, and Luther was was used by God, I think, to help clarify and to some degree rediscover justification by faith. But most of Luther's writings aren't worth reading. He's got one or two books that I'd say are. But Calvin, because he just taught through the Bible, his works will always, I think, be beneficial in some means to the church because he's got some good insights on texts, you know, um, because he preached through most of it. And he wrote some other stuff. But I mean, I'm saying because he, Calvin's first and foremost an expositor. Luther was first and foremost, I think, a theologian. And anyway, I, I certainly, I've read The Bondage of the Will by Luther, which is good fun. Um, Luther's got the most spicy insults ever. No, it's amazing how, how yeah, Luther has got a spicy pen. But uh, that's a, no, seriously. It's, um, he tells Erasmus, he keeps making fun of Erasmus of Rotterdam because Erasmus is so eloquent. Erasmus, your prose are like dung served on a silver platter. <laughs> that, that was memorable. Anyway, sorry. Okay, we got five minutes. What do we got?
seven minutes, really. Don, you still going? You good? You good? No, yes. Um, just a comment. Uh, one, another one of James' uh, yeah. themes is, is patience, um, and which brought uh, my mind went to Psalm ninety twelve. Lord teach us to number our days and mm. apply our hearts to wisdom. Mm. Wisdom is another James' themes, um, but often I I've often heard that referred to the shortness of our life. But I also think with that goes with our patience as we think of the length of our life. Mm. We have eternal life. So I, I don't have to try to get everything done right uh, in my time schedule, what I think is, but I can I can trust God. I, um, knowing that he's in control, that he's good, yeah. that he's wise, um, and uh, I, can, I can relax. Yeah. Uh, Paul... Uh, there's that. I think you could probably put them together. A patient urgency. Um, Hurry up and wait. Paul, kind of, sorta. Um, Paul said, "You know, the love of Christ constrains me," and he talks about uh, stretching out for the for the finish line. There is an urgency, but he was. But also, there's the the, the sense that we can we can trust God that we can yeah. that that, uh, that life is short. We so we need to to be busy about our father's business yeah but we can also trust that 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 god uh is good and he's in control yeah Yeah, you think of uh chapter four your your life is a vapor and a mist Uh right i mean there's a sense of like yeah you'll go there if the lord permits Uh man i take well take something as simple as weather or covid right two two and a half years ago i bet a bunch of us had plans that came to a screeching halt when you know, when COVID hit and the weather regularly does the same thing. And so God is constantly reminding us we're not nearly as sovereign or powerful as we are. Um, so, yeah, the the, the, hum, the, the the humble trust God. He's good gifts. He, nothing but good gifts come from him. Mm-hmm. And you're powerless anyway in the big scheme of things. So why not trust him, dummy? And and get busy not sitting yeah. around like the Thessalonians just being idle, but working we have been hard. given authority and responsibilities, yeah. but they're again under under his. So, yeah. So so in, linking back to what you said in three ten, I think most directly, give, if you take the rest of what he says about speech, it's the it's speaking ill against each other, slandering each other, quarreling, fighting. That's the context in which I'd say you'd say you curse your, you curse someone bearing god's image is the community of faith being fractious and fighting tying in with the wisdom from below that creates friction and jealousy and envy and selfish ambition um so in that context we shouldn't be cursing each other you know whether or not it's appropriate to pray one of those heavy duty prayers that some of the psalms give us that's up you and the lord you know but um it should not be some small or light thing and it certainly shouldn't characterize our speech i mean i think some people are far too ready to start cursing everybody um like they'll cite john the baptist as the example like okay cool you remember what happened to him right so so if you're ready to deal with it fair enough good for you um i'm a simple man these things are great and above me you know anyway that's our time godspeed god bless good day and uh, I can stick around for a few more minutes if you guys have any other questions. Thank you. And uh, we're going to dive into Habakkuk once we get done with uh, Resurrection Sunday. And, and uh, that'll be good. We're dealing with the problem of evil. <laughs>